Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, and welcome to episode 148. Today, we will conclude the interview with the straight-talking Missy Cummings, who became one of the U.S. Navy's first female fighter pilots in 1988. Then she got a Ph.D. in space systems engineering and later opened the Human Autonomy Laboratory at Duke University and recently spent a year as a safety advisor for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which is when her comments about Tesla received a great amount of attention. She just moved to George Mason University in the Department of Computer Science, running the Mason Autonomy and Robotics Center. We touch on non-vehicular robots towards the end of the interview, and one of the things that strikes me about robots is that when you start learning about them in school, the way a robot articulates is taught in terms of cascading transformations between coordinate systems, which is to say that a hinge, like an elbow, imposes a rotation, and now you have to switch your X, Y, and Z axes around to understand where your hand is. This leads to a lot of matrix multiplication. But humans, who have a lot of hinges, don't implement trig functions anywhere. There's no cells in our brain or muscles that compute cosine functions, yet we pick things up anyway. So those capabilities of dexterity and locomotion can't be fundamentally dependent upon that kind of calculation, and yet our current robots are, which makes me wonder whether it's possible to get robots to deal with the world without it all being based on matrix arithmetic. Maybe a roboticist out there could weigh in on that for us. Anyway, back to the interview with Missy Cummings. When I was thinking about vehicle autonomy years ago, before it existed publicly, I always imagined it would be a progression through some sort of infrastructure build-out, like vehicle-to-vehicle, vehicle-to-infrastructure, uh, which hasn't happened. We seem to have leaped straight to making or trying to make vehicles independent, autonomous, in the true sense of not talking to anything else. Have we gone too fast there? Should we be building out infrastructure that can communicate with vehicles, for instance? I think your thinking is very common. I know that there's a whole connectivity community in surface transportation that kind of keeps looking at themselves and saying, where'd we go wrong? How'd this happen? Like we were onto something and then all of a sudden DSRC is dead and we're not really sure about 5G. So I think that this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Look, the technology flew the coop when we went straight from the DARPA Urban Grand Challenge to commercializing self-driving technology. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we would have first had the military take that technology and work some of these kinks out before it rolled over into the commercial world. So because we skipped that, I do think that, you know, we've opened Pandora's box in the wrong place at the wrong time because the care and feeding that would have gone into the test and development of this technology under the military setting and more risky, let test pilots die instead of letting your average American die. 
that's been a good model for us up to this point. I'm not saying it's the only model, but I'm saying, gosh, it just turned out that these, you know, when you're talking about safety critical systems, there's a reason we let government through the military do a lot of the risky investment so that if it fails, that it doesn't end up in a lot of lost lives. So that being said, I also think the connectivity issue is there are actually two different issues here. The car technology is what can we do to control a car, which is a must-have. The connectivity and infrastructure and in the environment, that's kind of a nice-to-have. So in the best world, these two things would have tracked in parallel. But I do think that because of how we get overly fixated on the new bright, shiny thing in terms of venture capital investing, that we tended to focus on the cool part of having a self-driving car or don't even get me started on flying cars. It gives me a headache because we don't have either the self-driving car or self-flying air taxi done yet. So we're definitely not going to be able to combine these anytime soon. Instead of thinking about this nice to have and wouldn't it be better if we could, for congestion, for example, what if we could actually start having cars communicate with traffic lights so that they could moderate their speeds instead of having to stop at lights, wouldn't that be better for the environment? It would also be better for our time. So it's funny, after working in the government for a little bit over a year, I think one of the big lessons I learned there is, okay, you got to throttle back and just take it one step at a time and let's do things more simply. I think we took on way too much all at once. I think in this world of connectivity, if we could just get cars to figure out how to throttle themselves to not cause congestion using connectivity, that would be a massive win. I appreciate that everybody else wants to do research and all these crazy applications, but I think we as a country and as a community, the transportation community, we need one strong, straightforward technology transportation win. And we are not going to get that from self-driving cars. What would it be? I think the connectivity issue is, you know, I, by the way, do not go anywhere and Waze did not pay me to give them this advertisement, but like Waze and I go everywhere together. Like, you know, Waze, especially in DC with all these hidden traffic lights. Oh my God, the District of Columbia, they're just a bunch of criminals hiding all these traffic lights and dropping the speed limit so they can give you a ticket over the air. Thank goodness for Waze, right? That's the only thing that's saving me and all the other drivers in the area, right? So I think that's a good example of Look, that to me, that's a technology win. It's keeping me apprised of speed zones. You know, I'm not trying to speed. You know, I'm not trying to break the rules. DC is just trying to trick me into breaking the rules, right? So I think Waze is providing a very interesting functionality that could become more advantageous as we start to think about more advanced forms of planning and connectivity. Again, if traffic lights could be more flexible and adaptable in traffic demands. You know, I've got a traffic light. I live next to a school and the traffic light in the morning works at the same cycle that it works on all day long. And so we see huge traffic jams in the morning for the kids pick up and drop off. Come on, like it's the year 2023. Can't we figure out how to adapt that? Not only by a set of rules, but again, connect to ways 
County of Fairfax. Waze has so much good information. So I think that, again, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't research, do all this fancy research, because I think that that's what academics are really good at, are doing the research that's looking five to 10 to 20 years in the future. But in terms of application today, applied research, and what can we roll out very soon, I think that people in these environments need to quit reaching for another galaxy. And let's just kind of take a more simple application like more adaptive traffic management, cars communicating. If it's not going to communicate directly with the car, then look, we've got these apps, right? I think that there's a big space going forward about combining all of this real-time planning for traffic modulation. And I think you're showing how the development in this space and the way it evolves has a lot more to do with psychology and groupthink and politics, perhaps less so than those other two, than engineering sense. About five years ago, it seems we were seized with this idea that autonomous vehicles were a year away and the parking lots would become a thing of the past and the streets would be populated by roving bands of taxis that would be hired out to go pick up people. That's receded now, probably beyond the one-year horizon. And I think there's people left credibly claiming that we're only a year away from that. And I was horrified to learn what the reaction of some people was when you called BS on the Tesla vision. I've got a Tesla. I'm familiar with its quirks. I treat it as a science experiment, which requires a great deal of supervision. But the irrational reaction, that's not strong enough. You received death threats for saying that it wasn't safe. That bespeaks to one part of an iceberg of a huge amount of misguided thinking that exists with respect to autonomous vehicles. To what extent is that misguided thinking influencing, driving the way that the development is done, and the approvals are done and what we're seeing allowed on the road is happening? Well, I think that the fascination and love of the thing, the cool thing, I think it does influence a lot of what we do both at the government regulator, state and federal level, and also individual decision-making. It's funny to me, I did get a lot of just very angry, threatening emails for a long time over my work to remind people that Tesla, while I think it's a very, I like the car itself, I'm just not crazy about autopilot and full self-driving. You know, I think that speaks to the divisiveness of our nation. You can't say, I like this thing, but I don't like this aspect of this thing. You know, I think that that shows where we are as a country in terms of our inability to be more nuanced in understanding that not everyone is out to get you. That being said, it is actually a very small minority of people who hate me. They just are very vocal, led, of course, by Elon Musk. But their studies continue to show, and there have been recent ones released, Americans do not want self-driving cars. It's around, the numbers are starting to approach 80%. I'm telling you, in a divisive nation that can't decide whether they want a Republican or a Democrat in office, they're coming together to say, we don't want self-driving cars. So people are becoming more savvy. They're starting to see these accidents. They're starting to 
quote unquote, wisen up about a potential bad bill of goods that we've been sold. I think from a government perspective, one of the problems there with why aren't we doing more is it doesn't really matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. No American wants to be looked at as the person who causes a loss of jobs, especially in the economy that we're in right now. And so again, it's very superficial thinking to say that if I call a technology out as being bad, then somehow that's going to equate into a loss of jobs. So I do think that we as a country, we need to kind of grow up both from the individual perspective to understand a recall isn't saying that we're shutting a technology down. It just says we're asking you to fix it. And from the government side is introducing a recall doesn't make you look like you're trying to take away jobs. You're actually helping companies understand that there may be defects that need to be fixed. And I think if we can tie this all the way back into that accident that I talked about in 1995 with the F-18, I have never known an engineer in aviation or in transportation. No one is trying to code systems that kill people. No one, right? They want to design cool systems that work. Engineers do this job because they like to see the outcome on the other end. Software is hard. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. You can't see the crack in it when something goes wrong. And I think that we've had a big shift in this country of moving from deterministic systems to more non-deterministic systems that work on probabilistic reasoning. It's really hard to know when something is wrong. So instead of this war between companies versus regulatory agencies, I wish that kind of both sides would understand like, look, the regulatory agencies, especially for software-focused systems, are really there to be that last filter to understand, like, do we have a problem or do we not have a problem? It's very difficult to catch problems in software, especially when companies are motivated to get products out to market very quickly. So the regulatory system that we have, it's the right design. It should serve as a checks and balances. But people need to understand that it doesn't have to be adversarial, but you have both sides need to work for it to happen. So the regulators need to be able to step up and say, okay, there is a flaw. And I think our regulatory structure needs to change too. I think doing things by making a rule book of, of rules, the FMVSS that we have, the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards, I mean, this is old fashioned. We need something that you can update more often than once every 10 to 15 years right? Because that's the nature of software. So, but I also think companies need to spend more time and money on understanding what it means to have a safety culture. So I think both sides of the problem need to mature in their thinking. I think that we are getting there, but I predict that in the next two to three years, we'll start to see the judicial branch check in and there'll be some high profile lawsuits that will start to bring some judgments that will make both the regulators and the companies start to toe the line more. So a bit of backlash. When you mentioned systems not being designed to kill people, it reminded me of a report about three years ago that an AI had been developed for dogfighting and had beaten another pilot. Now, I wonder if you have some 
color around that report because they uh-huh. quoted an aviator as being basically well saying, okay, you got me. This thing is way better. I assume you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I, yeah, I'm telling If there's another third rail, it's the whole DARPA ACES program. So that's what you're talking okay, about. Okay, give, so, give it to me. So the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, sponsored by the government, they developed an AI to fly against a fighter pilot in a simulator. The whole thing was totally rigged. Not only was it rigged, and I don't have enough time to go in on how the AI was especially trained, how the fighter pilot was limited to certain actions and scenarios. The whole thing was rigged. And in the end, what it ended up showing is just how bad the Department of Defense was in artificial intelligence. I was just shocked and appalled when I saw these research results. I thought, look, DARPA is supposed to be the most cutting edge agency that the military has. And what they ended up showing was just how bad they were at designing an artificial intelligence system to actually do something meaningful and how desperate they were to show the rest of the world that somehow that they were doing something that could rival Silicon Valley. So I give everyone a big fat F on that. And by the way, you know, I mean, I'm a researcher who in theory could get DARPA money. I guess I'm not going to get DARPA money anymore to do research, but I feel like I have to say this. I mean, I have to call out that the emperor's not wearing any clothes because China sees this, right? I mean, I can't believe that we're doing demonstrations that actually ends up showing China and Russia just how bad we are. And then the people who are designing this and putting these videos on the internet don't stop themselves and say, wow, we actually don't look that good by showing off these technologies. So I call out to DARPA, like if you want to do a really good job, then put a real person in a real plane and have a real robotic F-16, which they have, and then let's do it and see how that works. Because I don't believe it. I'm not saying that it never will happen because, by the way, as a person who did dogfighting at one point in my life, it's very rule-based and it's very by the numbers. You can codify that. We could make an AI absolutely kick the butt of a human. But to do that, you have to be able to manage the uncertainty in the environment. And I don't see people solving the real problems that we need to solve to make that happen. So I'm laying down the line in the sand. All right, DARPA, you want to show that an AI can do it? Then let's do it in a real plane with real person and then put that video on the internet because I think then that would be extremely impressive. At some point, doesn't the AI end up winning in the future? I mean, if you get it right, then you have a plane whose flight envelope isn't limited by human physiology and that should be able to win. Won't that happen at some point? Exactly. That's right. That's exactly the point. I mean, the whole reason when you're a fighter pilot, you actually have to go to the school, we call it puke school, where you have to get spun in a centrifuge to show that you can take the maximum G's that you have to put on the aircraft to be able to do the really tight turns to get to the right missile shots. And what's crazy is when you come out of the simulator, I had to do it like everybody else do it. Everywhere where you have to, you're in a harness, everywhere that the harness was holding you, touching your skin, your capillaries burst. And so when you take this harness off, 
and you have no clothes on, you can see you have just the red imprint. It looks like a bad sunburn all over you where your capillaries burst because you were exceeding all of these cheese. You're like, wait a minute, if that's a, how good is that for my brain? You know, I do wonder sometimes, and I actually like every fighter pilot, I have compressed vertebrae in the neck. I have fighter pilot neck. It's a damage that's been done to my body that's permanent. So yes, an AI should, we should be using them for fighter pilots. It's not good for the human body. There are physical constraints. We black out all the time as doing it. The most successful weapon is a drone, whether it's a drone that's dropping bombs or a drone as a fighter pilot. I am 100% behind getting humans out of these cockpits because our human physiology fatigue, you know, aircraft carrier accidents, they always happen at 3 a.m. in the morning when humans are fatigued after some kind of battle mission. We need to embrace the fact that there is a place for automation and autonomy out there, but we are not replacing that pilot. We are actually now saying, all right, pilot, you're going to be back at the aircraft carrier or you're going to be on shore somewhere and you're going to be coaching that plane who can actually do a much tighter turn that's not going to burst its capillaries, that's not going to crash aboard the aircraft carrier at 3 a.m., but you're going to help provide its strategic thinking and its ability to reason uncertainty. And I think that's what I'm advocating for is that we really, instead of trying to do all this replacement of humans with robots, let's do augmentation and teaming. And so to bring the intersection of this with vehicles, let's look at automation of flights. Because anyone that says that or thinks that we should be able to make level five autonomous vehicles ought to conclude that that's a much easier problem to solve with airplanes. And not just take off to landing, which I'm told is already automated, but gate to gate. Because driving around an airport has got to be a lot simpler than driving on the 405. And yet that isn't happening. Now, is it something that isn't happening because of the psychology, the, the shared fate, you want someone at the pointy end of this thing who's going to get hit first? Or is it because of the technology? Because at some point, that psychology ought to shift where people wouldn't want to get into a plane that had a human in the front because they would say, well, that's a weaker link than a machine. Oh boy, you're really touching on not my third rail, but probably everybody else's third rail, which is would you ever get into a plane not flown by a human? So let me unpack a couple of different points that you asked. First of all, it is very achievable by today's technology to go gate to gate and have a human never touch the controls. So it's possible. I've written a paper that showed that pilots only touch the stick out of any flight of any length, whether you're flying to Australia or just to your next state, for three to seven minutes. So, and that's only on takeoff. And it's only because we haven't certified takeoff, automated takeoff yet for commercial aviation. But it's obviously we've got drones that are the same size as commercial aircraft flying around. So it's doable. You know, I think the question is, when are we going to make the investment in the infrastructure? We would need to layer in airports a lot more technology just to make sure that, for example, that you're not going to run over a baggage handler. So I think that definitely doable. It's just a matter of who's going to back the capital and get the regulatory agencies on board. So that is a different problem than do we want to see a person on the plane that's the captain slash pilot? And I think that 
humans will never fly in a commercial plane with other humans unless we have somebody in charge. Now, I'm not saying that that person has to be flying, but I, I call it the Captain T. Kirk approach, James T. Kirk. We've got to have somebody up there because of shared fate, because people want to believe, regardless of what happens, that that person is going to be doing everything they can to save their own lives and thus save your life. Even today, I mean, that person's only touching the stick three to seven minutes, right? And I think that if you ask people would they feel comfortable or uncomfortable with that, they'd say, oh, I'm good with that because I fly all the time and I see that we don't have problems. And you can always tell when a human is landing because the automation by today's technology lands much more gently and easy. And, you know, you, you can always tell when a Navy pilot, a former Navy pilot is behind the wheel because boom, they hit a lot harder. So I think that if people... And they continually do understand that the automation is flying the plane, but they want someone in charge and they want somebody in charge, not just for the technology problems, but increasingly we see the human problems, Mm. you know, people picking fights and people want to be able to point to someone in charge. It's their security blanket. And I raise it not out of any great enthusiasm because pilots are my favorite people and they're getting a raw deal these days. And And I wouldn't want anyone thinking that I was wanting to get rid of Sally Salenberger. But thinking of that on that flight, if an AI had been flying the plane and you get dual engine out bird strike at, I don't know, 5,000 feet or whatever it was on takeoff, would an AI, today's AI, have handled that? I mean, even to the extent of landing on the Hudson? You know, no. But there's just some technical reasons why... Planes cannot do emergency diverts. And I think that that's a big issue. Wind is still a very difficult construct to model inside of these systems because wind at, if you're standing outside the airport and however windy it is there, is not the same wind at 1,000 feet, is not the same wind at 18,000 feet. And we still don't have a lot of really good technology that's got the precise understanding of where wind is, how the wind is going to push you. And so the technology, you know, I'm not saying we won't get there, we're working on it, but to be able to understand where the emergency divert is and to be able to adapt with wind, among other factors, we're still not there yet. And I am not aware of any code that has been put in any commercial aircraft that will make it land on water. So we do need to be able to have these capabilities, but it's kind of like the fighter pilot dogfighting code. We can do it. I'm 100% sure we can do it. I'm 100% sure that we can codify in what it would mean to do an emergency divert and an AI could land on the water. I do think that we need to think a lot harder than about that teaming approach too, because you would have wanted that. You would want some kind of new breed of pilot slash dispatcher on the ground who would have said, okay, let's say it was a FedEx plane full of packages, because I believe that's where it's going to happen first. FedEx, DHL, they're going to have UPS, they're going to have robots flying packages around and we'll be fine with that. But let's say we want to try to have that emergency divert happen. You need somebody somewhere to be able to say no, that you're making the wrong call. And if nothing else, have the airplane fly into the ocean instead of trying to land in the wrong place and killing everybody on the ground. 
So I think that that is achievable in my lifetime. I think we will see cargo aircraft completely flown by automation. And then once that happens, we'll start talking more and more about what's going to happen in commercial aviation. Interesting. Thank you. Just with an eye on the clock here, I wanted to ask about other kinds of robots because we've been talking about the ones that carry people or things around transportation. And you have pictures of you with another kind of robot, sort of more humanoid. Does your work involve that sort of robot? Can you describe other kinds of robots that you're involved with? Yes, I love how much people love humanoid robots because I, like everybody else, want Rosie the robot maid to run around my house and do everything for me. So as much as I love that, I also think that this is probably the least likely robot application to happen anytime soon. But I do work, I do a lot of work with robot arms, for example. So there are, in a lot of manufacturing settings, the idea that robots can pick things up and put them other places or help you assist in tasks. So it's kind of an abstracted humanoid down to just a single arm. But yes, we do work a lot with various applications of robots that at least approximate some part of the human. What do you think about, say, the... I'm not going to go to the Tesla Optimist. That might be a bridge too far. But what do you think about the Atlas robot from Boston Dynamics? I love Boston Dynamics. They have the coolest robots. I love every time they come out with a dance video. I just, it's so fun. And I love showing it to my students. And I think what they've done is amazing. But again, even the Boston Dynamics people would tell you there's a reason that you don't have these in your house right now. They're still very expensive. The batteries don't last very long. They're kind of loud indeed. Like they came out of the gate developing this robot dog that in theory could carry supplies for soldiers. But one of the problems with them was that they were so loud that they're just kind of a dead giveaway. You can't sneak through the woods if you've got a big robot going, So I think that that just points to the fact that there's still a lot of engineering and advances that need to be made. That being said, though, they're really coming around. And I think the quadruped... Unlike the humanoid robot, where we still really have not figured out human proprioception, meaning the human brain is so amazing. It's a very low energy control wonder, the fact that it can do everything that it can do in the human body. Quadrupeds are better because obviously that's more stable and you can do more with that. And so I am really hopeful as a person who does a lot of backpacking I would really, really, really love to be able to buy. I'm pleading now with Boston Dynamics, you know, give me an affordable couple thousand dollar robot that's quiet that I can take on my backpack so it can take my tent and a bottle of wine and chairs and, you know, so I don't have to carry that. A Sherpa. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. That's what they should call it. That that should be their Sherpa robot. I'm very optimistic that they will continue to increasingly come up with commercializable robots It's just going to take a while because anytime you're asking a robot to work in any setting, all settings, there's so much uncertainty that comes with that, that it makes it very hard. I will tell you kind of surprisingly, my favorite robot right now is from a company called Dusty and there's other robots like this. 
that actually go to a construction site and they take the plans, the architect's plans of where walls should be. And once the concrete floor is laid, the robot will go and then lay down the plans on the raw concrete. It draws the plans and lays them out exactly. This is amazing. And as a person who's just went through renovation, you would not believe the mistakes, even though you have plans and you think, how hard can it be to go from that plan to putting something on a base? It's hard. And humans make a lot of mistakes. And so I think that that dusty being able to transfer plans from the abstract to drawing them on the ground, that is a perfect application of what a robot system, it's a perfect pairing. It's taking a very minutiae task that's hard for humans to get all the details right, lays them down, and then the humans can come in and do the more complex construction on top of it. But indeed, even constructing houses, robots are getting better and better at 3D printing houses. I love it. So I think there's a lot that's going to go on. Forget chat GPT, forget artificial and general intelligence. That's just, you're barking up the wrong tree. These very application-specific robots, particularly in construction, that's where the money's going to be made soon. So one penultimate question, what would you like to have achieved with robots 10 years from now? If you had asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have said, it is my goal to get drones out of the military into the commercial marketplace. Because I was one of the very first researchers to really get into the unmanned aerial vehicle community. And then within 10 years of me starting that research, it happened. And so it was, it's interesting because it's very rare for an academic to be able to see both kind of the birth and fruition of the ideas and all the work that they've done. And, you know, I've won a lot of awards for all that. It's been great. Like, so in one sense, I did get to see one of my big goals achieved. Now, sitting back and That's why I kind of transitioned over to surface transportation at that point, because I could see that all the same lessons learned would be applicable to the transportation community. Now, my goal is to get companies to see the value in the collaboration between humans and robots instead of just rote replacement. And the need to understand that human technology interaction piece is just a critical part of business practices and research practices going forward for the next hundred years. It's a struggle. It's a struggle to get companies to appreciate the kind of research that I do. It's also a struggle to get academia to appreciate the research I do because I'm not 100% an engineer and I'm not 100% in psychology. I'm somewhere between the two of those. And it irritates both communities that you won't absolutely commit to either side, right? But I think that the more that we see car crashes and problems trying to get these complex systems in manufacturing settings, I think it's slow progress, but it's coming. So you'll have to check back with me in another 10 years to find out whether or not we've made progress in that. Thanks, I'll put it on the calendar. Well, <laughs> how should people who want to know more about you, what you're doing, maybe get involved or just follow what you're doing, where should they go? Well, since I just got to George Mason, the Mason Autonomy and Robotics Center website, it's kind of up, it's going to be up and coming. So check back in another month or so. But I'm always on LinkedIn. 
I had to get off Twitter because Elon Musk hates me. And so if, I don't see myself going back on Twitter anytime soon. But if he either sells the company, I might go back on Twitter. But in the meantime, look for me on LinkedIn. Well, well, Missy Cummings, it's been a delight. Thank you for coming on the show. I can see the background that you have had here. Glad I never had to face you in the air. Not that that would have been a fair fight in any respect, but I'm glad you're on our side. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That's the end of the interview. There's so much to take away there. For instance, I look at our Roomba and I wonder when there will be a robot that can vacuum our stairs. And the robot that has the form factor that could theoretically do that is Boston Dynamics Atlas. Obviously, that's too expensive to be that consumer product. But I have to believe that there's a billionaire somewhere who would drop a large amount of money for an atlas to vacuum their stairs, mop the floor, and so forth, not out of any cost savings motivation, but just to show off what they can get with their money. But that hasn't happened, unless that billionaire is keeping it very quiet, which would defeat the point in this hypothetical case. So this has me thinking that the state-of-the-art robots can't even vacuum some stairs they haven't seen before, or someone would have done a Rosie the Robot video. Listener Paul wrote in with some questions which I'll attempt to address here. Would you agree that humans have the right to know when marketing and sales pitches etc. are generated by or with the help of computers? Paul, in California, it's already a law, the BOT Act of 2018, that an AI identify itself as such during certain interactions with humans. But your language would apply to a human reading a script that had been written by GPT-4. How much editing by a human would it have to go through before the disclaimer was no longer needed? What if a human editor looked at the AI text and decided they couldn't improve on it and any changes they made to it would make it worse? That's happened to me. I think it's important to know when you're interacting with an AI, when there's an exchange, but not necessarily when you are consuming content generated by an AI. Of course, that content might be micro-targeted subliminal advertising, which should fall under some kind of scrutiny, but maybe your proposal isn't the answer. Short answer, don't know. Next question. Do you also agree that those marketing and sales pitches should not be allowed to contain emotional statements that are unique to humans? Paul, I don't know that we have a useful handle on what emotional statements are unique to humans. That would certainly invoke something like a symposium among several of the neuroscientists I've had on the show, and I suspect they would punt the question back to you and ask what you meant by unique and why. I get that you're trying to limit the psychological damage and manipulation that can be done by AI that has been trained on human gullibility, and we need to do that, but we're going to need some much finer distinctions to avoid causing even more collateral damage with legislation on that. Paul asks, are there any standards being set that would grant those rights to humans and obligate companies to follow them if and or when the time comes that AI is able to pass the Turing test? I believe we should have the right to know that it's a computer that has passed the Turing test that is trying to communicate with us. As I've said recently, I'm sure that ChatGPT and GPT-4 have already passed the Turing test, or would if anyone gave them one, but the Turing test has become largely irrelevant in the last few years. There might be something in the new EU AI Act that would come close to answering your question, but otherwise I'm not aware of any such standards, and there certainly isn't any regulation or legislation enjoining companies from such behavior. 
And finally, Paul asks, now that ChatGPT has teamed up with Wolfram Alpha, can we soon ask AI to expose self-defeating problems created by humanity and provide us with a feasible alternate solution before our house of cards collapses? I think it's not unreasonable to think that GPT-4 might be close to distilling that sort of wisdom. But as I've said before, the problem is not getting a brilliant answer, because the best answer to a self-destructive problem like climate change is likely to be something we already know, just haven't accepted. The problem is getting people to adopt the answer. And just because it came out of an AI doesn't mean they'll listen to it. Now, it's possible that we could ask the AI what answer or strategy or messaging would have the best chance of creating positive change, given and evaluating human psychology, but then we're back in the territory you entered with your first question about AI creating content that influences people's decisions. Now, on the other hand, I have studied neurolinguistic programming and once read a book called Influencing with Integrity by Jeannie Laborde, which basically said that we're influencing people all the time anyway, so we might as well do a good job of it and keep their best interests in mind. So I don't have any beef with influencing per se, but the devil is in the details. And there's a lot of details and a lot of devil here. Anyway, I think the answers to all your questions boil down to this has a lot more to do with building better humans than it does with building better machines. Thanks for the questions, and keep writing. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, Coca-Cola has signed up as an early partner for ChatGPT and DALL-E, generative AIs both from OpenAI. Coca-Cola will team with OpenAI and Bain & Company to use ChatGPT and DALL-E to craft personalized ad copy, images, and messaging. This isn't a revolutionary or innovative use of that technology, but I bring it up to illustrate the level of market penetration and the height of application of a technology that's less than three months old, and here it is, playing a pivotal role in one of the biggest companies in the world. Next week, Alexandra Musa-Vizadeh will be returning to the show. She created the groundbreaking Global AI Index and the Disinformation Index. This time, she'll be talking about the AI Adoption Index that her new company, Evident Insights, has created and what it reveals about the banking sector in particular. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.